Hey guys, welcome to the 20th episode of the Georgia Jitsu Podcast. I'm your host, G. It's crazy to me that in a little less than two months, I've done 20 of these in a couple shorts. Uh, you know, I'm a sucker for numbers. So the analytics deal that Anchor does tells me, uh, gets, lets me geek out just a little bit. Uh, 86% of my listeners come from the United States. 14% are from Finland. A thank you to who I can only imagine is a single listener from outside of the United States. Age-wise, the majority of my listeners are from 28 to 59, with the largest group being 35 to 44, with 36% of my view or listens. 75% of my listeners are male, 16 are female, probably just my wife. And, and then 8% are not specified. So I, I, I just like to think that that's like, a, you know, somebody's got a really raunchy jujitsu gi that can get up and walk around on its own, and that's what's listening is that other. Uh, the most listened to episodes have been episode 1, episode 17, and episode 16. Um, if I remember correctly, my personal favorite has been uh, episode three, the submission window, and it doesn't even make it to the top five, listen-wise. So far, I've only had one guest, and that was my wife, and she's been on a couple times for some fight predictions, and she'll be on again later this week for fight predictions again. Um, You know, I plan to expand that in the near future. Uh, And also, Get you a t-shirt, damn it, man. Help me compete and all that jazz by supporting me through buying that merch. Uh, I'll make sure that the link for the merchandise is in the episode description. Uh, last night was the grand opening of my new academy, NRG Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I actually had all belt ranks on the mat. I had a black belt, a brown belt, a purple belt, a blue belt, and a white belt all on the mat. Uh, and I might have thought that I was going to have a larger turnout, but my head is still high, and I'm proud of what I'm trying to build over in Oak Hill. You know, I'm not giving up after just having four people on the mat with me, but we'll keep uh, we'll keep building, and, um, you know, I'm sure I'm going to have a whole lot more to say regarding the new academy over the next several weeks and months. Uh, for the 20th episode of my podcast, I've decided to publish the third installment of the miniseries chronicling my jiu-jitsu journey. I was a purple belt for roughly two years and four months from 2008 to 2010. I hope you guys all enjoy hearing about this time in my journey. Uh, most of this episode was recorded about a month ago, and I've learned a lot about podcasting since then, but I refuse to re-record it. Anywho, on with the episode. I received my purple belt in August of 2008. You'd already know that if you listened to the second episode of this series, The Blue Belt Blues. The weekend after my purple belt promotion, Dave Vanessa and myself headed to Morgantown to compete in a submission-only tournament. I, I think I mentioned it before, but at this point, submission-only was very, very foreign to me. I'd never uh, competed in that kind of a rule set, and... Um, I really didn't have much clue as to how they actually ran because, I mean, submission only in and of itself, if it takes you nine hours to win a match, it takes you nine hours to win a match. But anyway, so this tournament was being hosted uh, by Ground Zero in Morgantown. Um, 
that school is run by Don Cannon and Phil Davis, two super old school West Virginia Jiu-Jitsu guys. Uh, they're part of that group that were all purple belts when I started training. Um, you know, uh, like I said at the beginning of the last episode, or at the end of the last episode, that is, my plan was to compete at purple belt while still being a blue belt at this tournament. So we get there, and there are no 190-pound-plus uh, purple belts. Um, there are a couple of 190-pound-plus blue belts, and they asked me if I'll compete with them. Of course, went all the way to Morgantown, so I'm going to compete. So, seven days after my promotion to purple belt, I'm having to essentially grapple down a division. And if I lose then this shiny new purple belt that's around my waist would for sure be called into question. You know, sadly, I don't remember much about the individual matches. I know I got gold in both gi and no gi. I think I finished an ankle lock and maybe a knee bar. Uh, but for sure, you know, that was an absolutely high-pressure situation to go in there having just been promoted and then have to wrestle with blue belts and think, Man, if I lose, then am I really deserving of this Purple Belt promotion that I was given? I'm going to go ahead and mention that uh, I also began fighting MMA a lot more regularly at the Purple Belt level. I was in way better shape than I had been up until this point. Uh, and, and, of course, there was interest in me as a mixed martial arts prospect. Um, and, and, again, that's... For another series of episodes pertaining to my MMA career. Um, you know, and I believe I said it at the end of the last uh, of the Blue Belt episode that it was agreed upon when I was promoted that I would walk the gauntlet at a seminar in Charlotte a month or so after my promotion. Um, you know, a week of that seminar, I get a message from Addison making sure I was still coming. Of course, I jokingly just said no. And I was threatened for, for, for that joke. Um, I will mention that uh, you know, just a couple weeks before uh, that seminar in um, Charlotte, Grigel had an in-house tournament at his uh, school in Cincinnati. Um, I refereed there. I didn't compete. I think I might have been nursing some sort of an injury or had just fought or there was something that kept me from doing the tournament, and um, Grigel told Vanessa and myself of his intent to promote Addison to Black Belt in Charlotte. At the seminar in Charlotte, Addison received his Black Belt. Um, Vanessa received his Brown Belt. And if I'm remembering correctly, Ernie Skaggs, another old-school Beckley Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guy that started whenever myself and my brother started, got his purple belt. Um, I'll note that this gauntlet was the easiest of the three gauntlets that I had to do, you know, for blue, for purple, and for brown. Uh, the guys in Charlotte, they just didn't put any pepper on their shots with those belts. Uh, I, I guess that maybe it's just that's what their association does is just tap people you know, not like Huntington or Cincinnati where people tried to murder you with their belts. Um, that fall, I would go on to win my first amateur MMA title fight um, in a fight that 99% of people expected me to lose. And um, 
And then that's a theme that stuck through the majority of my MMA career was I, I was constantly the underdog. I was never the, the, the favorite. Well, not never, but most of the time I was the underdog in my fights. Um, and this, uh, this win in that title fight would really alter how my journey would go. Uh, and at this point, I had no clue that it was going to have this effect on me. The next spring, uh, the OGC, Ohio Grappling Challenge, um, later changed to the AGC or American Grappling Challenge, held their first Kentucky Championships. And it was in the area where I won that that uh, MMA title. You know, I gained a lot of fans. I gained some friends there. Uh, a local car lot up there sponsored my entry fee. Uh, they had a Purple World Absolute. They had a, a, a Nogi Advanced Absolute. And I don't remember all the finishes from that um, from that day either. But I do remember uh, catching a Dars in the Nogi. And, and before I go further, Dave and I had spent a ton of time after class refining our Dars game. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I caught the Dars, and I sat through to the guy's hips, and I latched onto his leg, and, and it kind of held his hands in a way to where he couldn't tap, and he went out. Um, I had a ton of people asking me about that finish. And at, at the time, it was a pretty foreign finish for that choke. And, and I don't mention that the guy went out to, to brag about it. I hated that he went out. I thought he was still moving around, and whenever I felt him go limp, I immediately let go. Um, in the gi that day, if I remember correctly, I armbarred everyone all the way through to the gold medal or to you know, the final and winning that one. That was another double gold day. Um, the thing I remember the most about that day is we had this young kid compete, and he had been taking privates from me. And in his privates, he wanted to do half jiu-jitsu and half boxing. Being as how he was the consumer and he was the one that was paying, I did them as he was requesting. Well, that day, he didn't look so great on the mat. And Grigel was watching and got super pissed. If I'm not mistaken, he got third place. But that wasn't, you know, good enough. Um, so, Grigel got super pissed. He tripped out on Dave. That pissed Dave off. And Dave tripped out on me. And and Dave had rode with me up there. And we had an agreement. I paid the gas to get up there. He paid the gas to get back. But he was so pissed that he uh, caught a ride back with someone else. And, you know, usually that would be no big deal. But when he did that in this situation... He kind of left me stranded with no gas money to get home. I, I had a little bit of money in my pocket, but it wasn't enough to get home. Um, thankfully, because I gained fans in the area and, you know, I, I had made some friends, I was able to borrow the money to get home. It was just a day late that I made it home. It wasn't long after this that Addison returned to Beckley and assumed uh the the position is the head instructor at our academy. Um, I'd teach beginners if we had any, and him and Dave would focus on the more advanced students. Um, 
you know, that meant that I missed a lot of the advanced classes and, and that kind of sucked. But at the same time, I enjoyed teaching the beginner stuff. So it was okay with me that that's what I was getting to do. Um, I would make my professional MMA debut that fall. That was in October of 2009. Um, you know, after a couple of fairly dominant wins, there was even more hype behind me. Uh, you know, I, I've won several fights in Northern Kentucky. Uh, I had a following there, and that put a ton of noise in my ear. Um, uh, some of those fights, they happened at a place called the Fight Club, and it was in Cincinnati and Longworth Hall. It was really cool place. They had a cage on on what was a dance floor for for a different type of club that the guy had purchased. And then it had like this like scaffolding type of upstairs area that overlooked the cage and it had a bar up there and man, it was just a it was the coolest concept ever and I wish it could have worked and been something that could have been something more special than it was. But I did make my pro MMA debut there, and and it was cool. But like I said, and I've said a ton of times whenever I've been going over these things, is, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a time and place where I go more in-depth on these things that were MMA-related. Um, but, uh, you know, that's where I'm at with that for now. And before I go on... My first serious knee injury happened uh, before my pro debut. It actually happened in April of that year. Um, I was up in northern Kentucky preparing for my pro debut. Um, I was training at JG MMA. Um, and I'd been invited to go uh, and train at Vision MMA in Cincinnati one day. And I was there, and I was rolling with the guys that were there. And there was another pro pot prospect there. His name was Mojo Horn. Mojo has since passed away. Rest in peace, sir. Um, and we were rolling, and I had him in like a knee shield Z guard position. And he bellied down on my knee and pulled my ankle up, and something went bad wrong in my knee. I, I couldn't hardly walk. When I tried to train, I, I was in pain, and, um, you know, it was just absolutely miserable. Um, but anyway, that got my pro debut moved back several months. Um, this knee injury has also caused me all sorts of problems from then all the way until now, up to and including having had surgery on that knee, and that'll be something that's mentioned later on in another episode. So the noise that was in my ear, uh, that next winter, uh, people wanted me to be teaching. They wanted me to be training in Northern Kentucky because I did have that following there. Um, you know, and there was a group of people, uh, myself, Joe Miani, a couple of guys that weren't um, instructors that were talking about starting a gym. Uh, when I told Addison about this plan, he said and thought that it was a terrible idea. I don't know if I did it, he would not support my decision to, to go forward with this decision. And I'm pretty sure he said it in far more words than that, and I just don't remember exactly. But it was probably something that was, um, you know, like, fuck that dude. You can't fucking do this and just 
you're going to fuck yourself. You're going to hurt your own, um, your own progression. You're going to just ruin your, you're going to ruin yourself essentially would probably be, if I, if I remember correctly, that's along the lines of what he said. And you could probably guess if you don't already know the story that I listened to the noise, I picked up and I moved to Northern Kentucky. I met a ton of great people while I was in Northern Kentucky, some of whom I still talk to semi-regularly to this day. Uh, my school, System MMA, had some pretty decent fighters um, at times, though I feel like they could have all done better if some things would have been done differently. Like, we, we, we did no-gi only, and, you know, I'll, at this point I was already evolving into more of a gi player, but, you know, we did tons of nogi uh, and we essentially put ourselves out of business when egos started to butt heads and uh you know people started to want to argue within the members of the you know the initial crew of the brain trust that caused issues with the training classes because i mean if you go into a gym and the vibe isn't right then nothing's right and there were times that the vibe, that the, just the the tension in the air was very evident whenever you walked in. Um, you know, once that happened, uh, more of the teaching load got put on me because people stopped coming, people stopped pulling their portion of the classes and just left it for me to do, um, you know. And a lot of the guys that were there were pretty green by this point. Um, I began going to Son of Siam, which is another martial arts facility up there, uh, for their noon Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes so I could get some gi work in. And then I also started going to some of their Muay Thai classes. Um, you know, I basically traded being like an emergency instructor there, uh, for the one or two classes a week that I would, uh, would attend because while I was up there. I was fucking broke. So by July of that year, 2010, uh, System had several fighters, and we were winning a, a pretty decent amount of our fights. Um, but behind the scenes, the original brain trust was down to two people. Um, I have one other instructor, I had a gentleman named Tom Black, uh, you know, he was teaching boxing and then he was also doing a lot of things, uh, outside of the gym with me for conditioning. He would go on runs with me and things. And to this day, I have a great appreciation for Tom and the things that he did to help me along. But, um, you know, every dime that the school got was going to pay things outside of the school for, um, you know, I don't even know how to say this. Not for me. Um, I will say that I was staying in the other member of the brain trust that was left's basement. He was using a lot of the monies to keep his rent paid. Um, but there was never any talk of me needing to move into a place of my own until it was just way too fucking late. Um, you know, we had to shut the original system location down and, um, we we were able to sublet a room at Gary Williams Karate School, but it was just a couple nights a week, and, and things were getting worse behind the scenes, and um, you know, 
I'm not going to go into a lot of the shit that was going on, and but, you know, we've all been in situations where we just don't feel welcome. And there were times during this point in time that I just didn't feel welcome. Um, but uh, I also got an offer for a last-second fight. It was like week of... Um, and there was a, a cancellation, and it was another promotion that's in northern Kentucky, um, but it was viewed as a rival promotion. And it's actually the one that um, that I originally fought for up there, but under different ownership. Um, and, of course, that caused uh, some more flack for me, you know, and it, it caused some more uh, issues just because I even considered the offer. But here I was, broke as shit, and a fight meant money. A fight meant food on my table. So at the end of August, I fight. I lose what is probably one of the most questionable referee stoppages in the history of Kentucky MMA. I spend all night in a hospital getting stitches. And then the next morning, on no rest, I pack everything up. And I come back to uh, West Virginia. Um, you know, I didn't tell anybody. I just, you know, it was time for me to come home. Um, and I'm not going to say that everything was bad about my time in Northern Kentucky. It was definitely a learning experience. And I learned a ton. And it was also a character building experience as I returned to West Virginia on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, you know, essentially, I killed any of the excitement around me as an MMA prospect, but it allowed me going forward when I came back to West Virginia to focus on my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, you know, and coming back to West Virginia posed its own problems. Like, where would I train? You know, I kind of, uh, you know, pissed people off when I left. Would I be able to return to my previous team? Or was that a bridge that had been completely burnt? You know, would I be uh, able to mend those relationships? Or would I have to think about another way to train up to and including trying to run a gym after just having the worst experience ever trying to run a gym? Or would I have to quit training altogether and just give up on my journey? Well, obviously... Since you're listening to this 12 plus years later, um, I didn't have to quit training. I did have to beg Adderson to be allowed back into the gym and into our academy here. I had to agree that I would have come back solely as a student, zero teaching responsibilities whatsoever, would pay dues and do the things that a student does, uh, which was fine with me. Uh, running system at the time had kind of wore me thin and, and it wasn't so much the teaching part that wore me thin as it was the backstage stuff and, and the way that things were behind the scenes. It wasn't a couple weeks later that the facility that Adderson and the academy had moved into while I was gone announced that they would be closing their doors. Um, it was centered around sports-specific training you know, they did a lot of stuff for football players, for basketball players, for that, that centered on the sport that they were preparing for. And I just am not sure if uh, 
that was something that really was necessary in small town Beckley, West Virginia. Um, and it also should be mentioned that their facility was in a commercial spot, like a commercial retail spot that had a, once been a drugstore. And I'm sure, because I, I've, I've dealt with it more recently than this, that it was really difficult for them to pay their bills and and for the owner to make any income because I don't believe I don't know if he had another another source of income or not at the time, um, but anyway, you know I, it's not like I don't I've had any experience for anything like that. But that's a story for another time. So one of the last nights that we uh, we trained at that facility, we're all walking out after training, and Addison stopped me and said he. Uh, had found a building that we would be moving into and that we'd be moving into it alone as a standalone Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy. He also said that he wanted to expand the number of class offering, offerings that we had because we had never taught, we had never trained more than three times a week at this point. Um, but he wanted to include a beginner's program based on a curriculum. And, and this curriculum he had created years before um, and he created it because we had some blue belts, not me, that were uh, lacking in some very fundamental skills. Uh, here's a little fun fact. I still base a lot of my beginner classes off of a very similar curriculum. I've adjusted it just a little bit, but it's very, very similar. And by expanding the class offerings, he was going to need me to teach the beginner's classes, which I gladly accepted that, that role. Uh, we spent the better part of the next month prepping the, the new building for our academy. Uh, the previous tenant that had had it before us essentially used it like a trap house. There is shit everywhere, like literal dog shit everywhere. Tons of trash. We had all kinds of cleaning that we had to do, sweeping and mopping and painting and, and all this craziness. And in no November of 2010... West Virginia MMA Academy opened in Beckley, uptown, close to the old police department. As with anything new, a ton of old faces from our past started coming out of the woodwork. You know, our classes were full. We had new faces that were aplenty, and, and we were able to get a lot of really good training in. My beginner's classes were quickly filling up, and it went from just beginner jiu-jitsu and beginner no-gi to beginner jiu-jitsu, beginner no-gi, MMA, and even a striking program on to, to uh, complement the jiu-jitsu program. And that was pretty awesome for me as it kept me pretty busy. It was just a few weeks after we opened, uh, George Grigel had a seminar at his academy in Cincinnati uh, with Marcus Aurelio. And I'm going to say this, and, and this is probably going to get off topic but I've tried to remember things that were taught that day a ton lately I know the position was called tornado guard but I didn't put it directly into my game so the information is lost and I said so this is going to get into a tangent because you know it sucks that I've lost that information but um you know, when you go to seminars, take notes. 
you know, so you don't have to say what I just said, you know, so you don't have to admit that you essentially wasted money on a seminar because you didn't retain the knowledge. And I'm not saying that, that, that that's a waste in any way, shape or form as far as the support of a seminar. I want people to absolutely still go and support seminars, but take notes. And if you don't want to take notes, fine, still go and support the seminars. Sorry, that's a, a short, short little tangent there. And that's really another good topic for a future episode. Um, anyway, after the seminar, myself and it was four or five others were all promoted to brown belt. The gauntlet there was ridiculously long and brutal. There was a set of stairs and another fucking mat involved. Um, if you do a Google search for JG MMA Promotions 2010, the first one that shows up says 11-20 on it. Click on that. And that's the gauntlet, or that's the promotions and gauntlet from that day. Video of this is also somewhere on my TikTok. Um, you know, G Euler BJJ, shameless plug for that. Um, before before I close out, you know, the Purple Belt episode here, I competed quite a bit at Purple Belt. Um, to the best of my recollection, I never lost a match. I'm, I'm not saying I didn't, but I just do not remember. And if I had, I'm pretty sure I would because I remember my losses. It, you know, I, I remember my losses way more than I remember my wins. And I think that's pretty substantial in the fact that for some reason I do not recall losing as a purple belt ever. Um, you know, so this concludes part three of this series of episodes. Of course, next up is brown belt, which at the time that I'm, I'm – making this series was the belt that I was at the longest amount of time. Um, of course, being a black belt now, that will change. And, and it actually changes right before I, right before uh, October. October 22nd will be six years as a black belt for me. Um, it, I also want to mention that if I go back over these episodes and find something I forgot, or if like my lack of recollection on losses at Purple, someone beat me and comes forward and says, hey, I whooped his ass at this tournament on this day while he was a Purple Belt, I will fucking mention it. I will gladly go back and add that. And the same goes for, you know, maybe there's a little story that I'm forgetting now, and I go back and I'm like, oh, shit, I remember this little story. Let's add that. Um, but, you know, I'll happily go back and just mention it in a future episode, be like, look, you know, I forgot this when I did the Blue Bed episode, or I forgot this when I did the Purple Belt episode, and, and I'm going to mention it today. Um, you know, while trying to remember all the details in my journey, it has been a bit of a struggle, you know, um, and, and we'll go over this stuff at some point, too. Um, I've had some serious shots to the head over the course of MMA and, and then playing semi-pro football. So sometimes memory isn't my, my strong suit. But it, it has been enjoyable trying to think of these memories and put them onto this format um, so people can listen to them if they want to. you know. And I want to thank any and everyone that takes time to listen to these stories or to listen to the topics that I cover in an episode. And again, if there's anything that you want me to cover, let me know. 
I'm open to talking about just about anything. But, um, you know, check out me on social media or check me out on social media. Facebook.com slash MMA, Instagram.com slash BJJ, or BJJ on TikTok. Um, until next time, guys, peace. <laughs>